stories, you know, in Greek mythology, there's a baby born, he's named Achilles, and, uh, you know, in the river Styx, there has had these supernatural powers, and so his mother decided to dip him in it to basically uh, make him uh, like, you know, if you think about the Marvel movies, you know, um, a superhero almost to make him invulnerable, and so as he was dipped in the river, he had all these powers, except uh, where she was holding him by his heel, uh, and, you know, he, he wasn't able to be dipped there. That was his weak spot. Nobody really knew that for a long time. So he's this mighty warrior, did all these great things. But eventually he was killed by being shot in, in uh, the heel, uh, hence Achilles' heel, with an arrow, and he died from that. That was his weak, weak point. That was uh, the chink in his armor, so to speak. And, and so kind of what we talked about last week, and uh, we will pick up again today in talking about the armor of God, is we're talking about trying to close the chinks in our armor, because, you know, what we've said is, uh, you know, we're in a spiritual fight. We have a spiritual enemy. Uh, Satan is fighting against us. But the victory's already been won by Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection. And we can stand strong in the Lord and the power of his might. But the way we do that is by putting on the armor of God. We said that Satan's authority is broken over us by the cross. He has some power against us. But the only authority that he actually has in our lives is when we um, give him authority. And, and when we give him an opening, and how do we give him an opening? We give him an, an opening by not uh, wearing the armor that he's given us. And we talked about last week, we talked about the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and that really truth is foundational to everything else. And we're gonna build on that. But without truth, you can't have what we're gonna talk about today. You can't have righteousness. You can't have peace. You, you can't have uh, these other things. And so, you know, the big idea that we're looking at is that we are equipped to fight our spiritual enemy by putting on the armor of God. And, and so what we're going to see today is we're told to put on righteousness and peace. And really, I think in a lot of ways, these two go together because they both come from the gospel. There's no righteousness without the gospel, which the gospel is the fact that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead. But then the Bible teaches us there's no peace apart from righteousness. So really, there's no true peace apart from the gospel. And so this is what our scripture text says, Ephesians 6, 14 and 15. It says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And let me just go ahead and, and, and say this up front. Uh, you know, if you've ever studied this much, uh, you know, Bible commentators kind of debate when it talks about righteousness. Are we talking about uh, the, the positional righteousness, what Tony Evans calls being righteousness that comes from Jesus on the cross? Or are we talking about practical righteousness, what we actually do? And I would say the answer is yes. Because biblically, you can't have righteousness really without having both of those. When it, when it comes to peace, Bible commentators also kind of debate. Um, 
You know, is it talking about, because it talks about having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Does that mean talking about, you know, taking the gospel out and sharing it with others? Or is it talking about, you know, the peace that we can have uh, through God? And this one's probably a little bit more debatable, but once again, I would say the answer is yes. It's talking about both. And so that's how I'm going to present it. So let's start by talking about the breastplate of righteousness. And, and so, and number one, we equip ourselves for the fight by putting on righteousness. I mean, apart from righteousness, Satan is going to have his way with us. I mean, if you think about a breastplate and, you know, as far as armor, you would be very vulnerable if you were going to battle without this. Your vital organs would be exposed. Uh, Brian Borgman and Rob Ventura, who are a couple of pastors, have written together a, a book about spiritual warfare, describe it this way. They say in Paul's day, the soldier's breastplate was a layer of metal or very tough leather that covered the soldier from his neck to his navel, both front and back. Now, let me just say a little something there. I don't know if you've ever heard, heard this passage taught before. I have. We're like, the armor covered all the soldier except his back. And so other Christians got to have your back. We got to stand together, which is actually true. But just from the analogy and from a historical perspective, that's actually inaccurate. The, the armor, the breastplate covered the front and the back. I think they're right historically in what they're saying. Uh, they say the breastplate provided crucial protection from mortal wounds. This description informs our understanding of our spiritual warfare. The breastplate was a chief piece of defensive armor for a soldier because it protected his vital organs during battle, and it serves the same function for us spiritually in our battle with Satan. As inconceivable as it is that a soldier would go to war without protecting his vital organs, it should be even more inconceivable for us that we would enter into warfare with the devil without protecting ourselves. Spiritually speaking, this breastplate covers one of the main areas the devil seeks to attack most often, our hearts. Now, it's probably a little bit hard for us to relate to the armor in this kind of way, but maybe a, a way for us to really get what this saying is thinking about a bulletproof vest in our day and time. So watch this video, and maybe this will make it a little more real to us. So, 
And when Andy and I were watching this video the other day, we were both like, move your hands, dummy. We were both, <laughs> we were both a, little, a little freaked out about that. But um, um, I mean, w without the vest, th th that's deadly, right? With the vest, it's just painful. And I think that's a pretty good picture of what this text is saying to us. You know, Satan's attacks without uh, this vest, without this um, breastplate of righteousness are going to be deadly uh, to us because if we don't have the righteousness of God, we're gonna end up in hell. But maybe they're just painful when we're wearing this. And so beyond though this kind of metaphor, this symbol of um, you know, the breastplate. When we talk about righteousness, what are we talking about? And, um, you know, Job expressed what is one of the most fundamental questions of humanity when he said, how can a man be righteous before God? I mean, deep down, isn't that one of the cravings of the human heart? You know, how can I be right with God? Or uh, even people who don't believe in God, like how can I not feel guilty? Which one of the things that makes no sense to me is why somebody would be an atheist and never feel guilty about anything. Those things don't seem to go together to me. Uh, it, to me, it points there is a God because it points that we have a conscience. And if we have a conscience, we have a soul. And if we have a soul, there is a God because uh, material evolutionary processes could not create an immaterial soul. It's just uh, the reality of it. How can a man be righteous before God? How can a man be made right with God? You know, we talked a little bit about the Reformation last week. But really, where, where it came from, was Martin Luther uh, trying to be right with God. Um, I mean, he was a monk, but he was miserable. Uh, I mean, he was doing all these religious things, but he's like, how can I be forgiven of my sin? And he knew all these religious deeds weren't cutting it. And, and, and he knew, uh, I mean, really what started the, the, the Reformation was the popes were selling indulgences to knock some time off of purgatory. And, uh, you know, Martin Luther's like, I know none of these things are, are going to make me right with God. And he wanted to be right with God. But at one point, he's like, I hate God because God's so holy and I'm so sinful and, and I could never be reconciled to him. But as he began to study the scriptures, he finally began to see it wasn't in human works, but it was in faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And it changed his life. And then he changed the world. And, and that's really what the Bible teaches us, if we're going to be right with God, it's going to be through Jesus Christ. You know, much of the history of humanity has been a quest for us to cover our guilt and shame and sin. It started in the garden when they sewed fig leaves together. Isaiah said in the Old Testament that our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, if we're honest, we all fall short. And there may be ways that we justify ourselves or we compare ourselves with, with, with other people or we condemn other people or we want justice for other people. But, you know, we want to feel like that, that we're right and what we do is good enough and, and, and all these kind of things. I, I, I was reminded of that uh, the other day. You, you ever been driving and somebody's like, driving like a jerk around you and, and you're thinking, I hope they get pulled over. <laughs> that happened on Friday. 
It was a good day. Uh, I, 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 <laughs> so I'm not the only one who thinks that way. Um, so uh, Preston Ford and I have lunch together once, on, once a month, and I was going to meet him for lunch. And, you know, we live in Talbot, and we, we were meeting in Dandridge. So I'm driving at 11E, and I, and I stop at the red light at Carroll's Grocery, if you, know, uh, where, if you know Talbot at all, you know where I'm talking about. And, there, and there's nobody behind me. I'm in the left lane. And so, you know, start driving, and then a car pulls up behind me, just completely on my tail, you know, going really fast, but then kind of driving erratic. It's going like this. I'm thinking they're going to wreck. So I, I get over in, in the right lane, and, uh, you know, they pass me, and this is when I'm thinking, uh, you know, they need to get pulled over because they're going like, they had to be going 70, 75, and it's a 50-mile-an-hour zone there. And uh, wouldn't you know it that there was a police officer at the Presbyterian Church down here, and, I mean, just... I think it was a man, I mean, he went by so fast, I couldn't see real well. I think it was a guy, nailed the guy. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm thinking about it, and I'm thinking, because, uh, you know, preachers live for sermon illustrations. I think there's a sermon illustration in this. Um, but then, uh, yeah, if you do something illustration-worthy, send me a text, I'll use it. But, um, but then a couple of minutes later, something hit me. You know, I'm so happy that this guy is getting uh, what's uh, coming to him. But then I started thinking, you know, Maybe if it wasn't for that guy, I might have gotten a speeding ticket because honestly, you know, it's a 50 and I'm going somewhere between 55 and, and 60 at this point. And, you know, I guess actual justice would have been that maybe I deserved a, a speeding ticket as well. And isn't that how we are spiritually a lot of the time? We're looking at what everybody else has done wrong and we're wanting everybody else to get what's coming to them. But what about what we deserve? How can a man be made right with God? Well, the Bible teaches us there's two aspects to righteousness. There's what's called imputed righteousness. And uh, imputed righteousness, it's gift righteousness. It, it, it's, it comes to us in justification. It's when God declares us righteous when we place our faith in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So think of it this way. Think of, think of our spiritual lives as like a bank account. And, and, and think of every sin. I mean, we can't do this, but I mean, just to try to think of, you know, how many times you would have sinned over the course of your life. And understand, if we sin 10 times a day, which I, I think is probably conservative, considering sin could be what we think, what we say, what we do, our motive, and not actually doing the right thing, those five things at a, at a minimum, I, I think 10 times a day would be, uh, you know, pretty, pretty conservative. But, but do you realize if you live to be 70, you're going to sin like 200 and some thousand odd times over the course of your life? So if, if you think of that as your bank, spiritual bank account, think of that as the debit side, Everything that you owe God. Now, a lot of times what we try to do is we try to think there's a credit side 
where if we do enough good stuff that that balances out or that erases the debits. There is no indication of that in the Bible, though. The Bible indicates that God is perfectly, completely holy. Sin can't dwell in his presence. And it says that the standard is that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of his perfection and his holiness. And uh, there's nothing we can offer God. Our righteousnesses are his filthy rags. And in fact, in Romans chapter 4, the Bible says when we're working instead of trusting, it's not grace, it's debt. So listen to me, hear this. If you think you can save yourself, make yourself right with God, the Bible is saying that every time that you attempt to do that, that you're not adding to the debit side of your, or the credit side of your spiritual ledger, you're adding to the debit side of your spiritual ledger because it's not for the glory of God. Listen, that's why an unsaved person can be more moral than a Christian person But an unsaved person can never be good or righteous in the sight of God because the motive is always self-centered and not Christ-centered and God-glorifying. That's why we can never be saved by religion. And so if you think about this spiritual bank account, we have this debit side. There's nothing on the credit side. We're hopelessly overdrawn. We have a debt that we could never pay. But this is what imputed righteousness is. Our debit, our sin is placed in Jesus' account. And Jesus' perfect obedience, all of his righteousness and his sacrificial death, his payment for our sins, it's transferred then to our account. And you see, this is the gospel. We don't talk about this enough. We talk about Jesus dying for our sins. But you understand, Jesus had to live a perfect life in order to be, actually be able to die for our sins because what happens in this double imputation is it's not just that our sins are transferred to Jesus where we're forgiven. Our sins are transferred to him and they are forgiven, but all of Jesus' perfect obedience is transferred into the credit side of our bank account. We are now positionally in the side of God. God sees us as perfectly righteous because all of Jesus' obedience has been credited to us and we're now clothed in the righteousness of Christ and that's why then the Bible can say in Colossians 1 21 and 22 and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Listen to me, that is the gospel, that despite who we are, despite everything we have done, because our sin has been transferred to Jesus, because he who knew no sin became sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. His atoning death and his perfect obedience have been transferred to us, that now, despite who we are, Despite what we've done, when God looks at us, he sees us in Christ, and so he sees us as holy, as without blame, and as above reproach in his sight. That's grace. 
And that's why you can approach the throne of grace with confidence and boldness to find grace and mercy and help in the time of need because it's not about us, it's about Jesus. And someone who's really a Christian is the one who has given up on all of their self-righteousness, on all of their religious attempts to make themselves right with God. And they are resting in, relying on, trusting in Jesus and his perfect righteousness alone. Is that where your faith is? Listen, he doesn't need your help to save you. He took care of it all himself. So, When we talk about putting on the breastplate of righteousness, it begins by putting on this righteousness through the cross. I mean, can you stand in confidence that God sees me as holy and blameless and above reproach, that my sins are cleansed by the blood of Christ, that I'm trusting in Jesus alone? If not, the way that you put on the breastplate of righteousness today is by coming to Jesus in humility in admitting that you're a sinner, and admitting there's nothing you can do to save yourself, and asking for his forgiveness, and asking him to come into your life and to change you and to take control of you by putting your faith in him and him alone. But then there's also what the Bible, what, we, what could be called imparted righteousness. Imputed righteousness is justification, Imparted righteousness is sanctification. And this is that once we're in Christ, we're a new person. We have a new heart. We have the Holy Spirit. And so now we're capable of living differently. We're capable of and called to living a surrendered, obedient, righteous life with the motive of the glory of God, not to earn favor with God, but because we've been given all this favor for the glory of God. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul put it this way. He says, if indeed you have heard him and been taught by him as the truth is uh, in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and and holiness. Put off, put on, kind of like put on the armor of God. In other words, put off our old sinful ways, put on uh, this new person that God has created us to be through the renewing of of our mind. In other words, he's saying, I've made you righteous. This is who you are. In Christ, you are a righteous person. You are a saint. You're redeemed. You're adopted. You're accepted. You're beloved your mind, now go live like it. That's what he's saying. I've made you a new person, now live a new life. That's the gospel from the inside out, not from the outside in. Religion's from the outside in. That's why it never works because we can't live a new life apart from a new heart. This righteousness gives us a new heart. So, But what does it look like to actually live a righteous life? You see, understanding this answers some common questions that people have. You see, you know, we we ask how somebody could say they're a Christian and never live like it. Well, it may very well be that they've never actually truly trusted Jesus Christ and been made righteous because if we've been made righteous, our life should look like it. But it also answers some questions like, okay, if, if I'm saved, why do I still sin? 
well, we're not glorified, we're not perfected in heaven yet. But it also answers the question, I think, like uh, somebody texted me the other night, if I'm a Christian and I'm forgiven, why do I still need to confess my sins? We'll get to that in a minute. Or why, if I, if, if, if I still sin after I'm saved, why do I stay saved? Well, it's because Jesus not only forgave you, he also credited all of his righteousness to you. It's based on, salvation is not based on our obedience, it's based on his obedience. And, and this is who we are positionally. But then practically, how do we live it out? How do we live like a righteous person? Well, there's surrender and obedience. Romans 6 puts it this way. It says, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust." Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Paul says, certainly not. And, and, and certainly not. It's kind of a weak train. He's saying, just ain't no way we can do that. Okay, that's like the East Tennessee translation. I mean, basically, you know, what he's anticipating an objection, saying, well, if you have this much grace, doesn't it mean you can sin all you want to? And the answer in one sense is yes, but the larger answer is if you have this much grace, you're not actually going to want to sin because grace doesn't just forgive us of our sins. Grace changes who we are on the inside. Grace doesn't set us free to sin. It sets us free from sin is what he's saying in Romans chapter 6. But we actually have to daily surrender to the Lord, choose to obey. We're empowered to do that by the Holy Spirit. But he says, verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you're that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So we may have put this breastplate on, we may be protected in the sense of positionally we're righteous, but if daily we're not surrendered to the Lord, we're living in disobedience, we're living in sin, it's like we're exposing our vital spiritual organs to Satan's attacks and we're going to create a lot of problems in our lives. So when we do sin and we create this chink in the armor, how do we close it? Well, the Bible tells us to confess our sins. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So when we sin, not if we sin, when we sin, then we have a choice. Will we cover it up or will we confess it? You know, when we cover it up, we make it worse. When we confess it, this says, when we confess and forsake, we receive mercy. You know, maybe it's kind of like, uh, a lot of y'all know the whole family here at True Life. You know, they have 12 kids. Not many of them are at home now. But for the last several years, we've been their next door neighbors. It's not nearly as much fun as their kids have gotten older and moved out. Um, you know, used to, you come home from work and you're, one, you're just like, it was just entertaining because like which Holt boy's on my roof, which one's on their roof, which one's on their shed, which one's in a tree, you know, just wanted to see how high in the air uh, they, they might be. But um, we, you know, we, there's a famous story from the, the Holt boys, you know, like four of them shared a room together. 
And some of you may have heard this story before that one time, um, and they had like a window air conditioning unit that fell out of the second floor of the house. But the way that it fell out of the, the reason it fell out of the second floor of the house is they were trying to open the window because their mom had told them to clean up their room. They had not done it. She was coming up the stairs in mom fury uh, about to uh, deal with them. And their remedy for the situation of uh, their sin about to be dealt with was to try to start throwing clothes out the window into the yard. Like, you know, I don't know what the strategy was next, but, uh, you know... They were boys. You kind of just barely think one step at a time, right? Um, and, and so in the process of trying to hide their clothes that were supposed to be straightened up, fortunately, nobody was standing underneath that window when this air conditioner fell out. Now, we laugh. Well, we should. Sorry, Jackson. Uh, I, I think you're the only one here to take it all. But uh, um, like I said, do something sermon illustration worthy. I appreciate it. Um, you know, we laugh at that. But I mean, what happens to us when we do dumb things to cover our sin instead of actually bringing it to the Lord? Um, you know, in John chapter 13, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, and he comes to Simon Peter, and Peter, you know, asks, Lord, are you washing my feet? You know, Peter just always the, had the right thing to say, didn't he? he was like, you know, Jesus has a towel and water. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But so Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter says, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Peter says, not only my feet, but my hands. My He's like, give me a bath, you know, if this is what you're saying. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Do you understand? That's, the, that's why we confess our sins as Christians. Jesus is saying you're already clean, but you need to be washed from the stains of life. Listen, when we sin, we don't lose our relationship with God, but it breaks our fellowship with God. We can't be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like sometimes in marriage. Um, you know, I've had to apologize to my wife many times, but we never stop being married while waiting, her waiting on me to apologize. It did not affect our relationship. It just temporarily affected our fellowship. It needed to be made right. And so that's, that's a picture, I think, of our relationship with God. If there's sin in our lives, we confess it not to stay saved. That's settled in Christ, but so we can actually be in fellowship. So if we want to wear the breastplate of righteousness, it begins by repenting of our sins, placing our faith in Jesus and receiving this gift of righteousness. But then it's actually living in obedience, confessing our sins, walking it out day in and day out. But then number two, we equip ourselves for the fight by putting on peace. And listen, these two things cannot be separated because scripture says there's no peace for the wicked there's no true peace apart from righteousness. There's no righteousness apart from the gospel. Now, let's think about shoes for a minute. 
You know what would be something that would be an interesting poll for those of us in the room, those of us online? We don't have time to do it, but I, I would just love to know who, ha- who owns the most shoes in the room. I think my money would be on Rusty Arwood. I, I, I could be wrong, but my money would be on him. But, I, you know, if you think about it, we have shoes for different occasions. And as I was thinking about this, I think I must have more shoes than I realize. I mean, I have a pair of house shoes. I have a pair of hiking boots, you know, that I wear for the snow and my uh, once-a-decade hiking excursions. I have a couple pair of tennis shoes that I wear. I have a pair of high tops for athletic stuff. I have a pair of old high tops uh, for mowing. I have a couple pairs like dressy dress shoes uh, for suits. I have my maybe three pair of uh, like casual dress shoes, kind of like what I'm wearing today. That's a dozen right there. You know, if I went and, and, and looked around, I might be able to find some more. But, you know, there's different shoes for different functions. Some of you ladies have shoes just that like have shoes. I mean, they just like multiply and birth and grow. But, um, you know, in this text, it's talking about a specific shoe for a specific function that these soldiers needed. And the same authors I quoted before put it this way. It says, along with belt and breastplate, Proper footgear was a vital piece of equipment for a first-century Roman soldier. Often involved in close-range combat, he needed to be sure-footed since losing his balance due to inadequate footwear could hasten his demise in battle. To fight well, he needed to move quickly and decisively and therefore required solid footing. Scholars tell us that the Roman soldier wore shoes that were leather half boots or sandals tied with straps at the ankles and shins. The soles were thick leather, having hollow-headed hobnails under them that greatly improved the warrior's balance. These were like the athletic cleats football and baseball players wear in our day, providing the fighters a firm connection to the ground and an enhanced stability wherever they turned. Without such footgear, a soldier would never be ready for combat. He would never be able to withstand the attack of the opponent. Paul tells us that as spiritual soldiers in Jesus' army, we are to have properly equipped feet. Now, when we talk about peace, what are we talking about? You know, we're talking about an inward calm. And a story I heard one time, I think, illustrates what real peace is. Um, there were a couple of painters who were commissioned to paint a painting that was to depict peace. And uh, they were put in a contest and there was a, a monetary prize and some, some judges were, were going to judge what uh, was the best picture of, of, of peace, what best depicted it. And, and so the, the first painter painted just this serene uh, picture of a lake that was calm with the sun glistening on it. There was a shepherd with a small flock of sheep nearby. Uh, There were trees and and birds and everything was just perfect and it was so calm. And he thought, I've accurately depicted peace. The second painter, though, painted a 
picture of a, of a pitch black sky other than some streaks of lightning and, and large waves billowing on the sea. I mean, basically, he was painting chaos. But down in the bottom left corner of his painting of this storm was a bird with its mouth open as singing and then a faint light in the darkness of all this blackness and clouds. And the judges decided that the second painter had better depicted peace because real peace is something on the inside when there's storm and chaos around us not when everything is calm and perfect. Listen, how often is everything calm and perfect? Number one. Number two, if things are calm and perfect, shouldn't we be at peace? I mean, if everything's good and you're not at peace, there's some real issues then. I mean, just honestly. I mean, that's probably when you need some professional help. But like when things are rough, and things are rough a lot of the time, if, if our peace is based on our circumstances, it's not real peace. So how do we have peace that's not dependent upon our circumstances? Well, here's just quickly some basic things the Bible tells us about peace. There's peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the foundation of all other peace. Listen, we can't have true peace if we're in enmity with God. How do we have peace with God? It's by being reconciled to God. How are we reconciled to God? It's through the cross. It's by receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why I said before, there's no peace without righteousness. There's no righteousness without the gospel. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you at peace with God? If not, place your faith in Jesus Christ today. Second, the Bible talks about the peace of God. John 14, 27, Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you. You don't want the world's peace, right? The world's peace is circumstances. The world's peace is a bottle. The world's peace is a drug. Jesus says that peace is the actual possession of a Christian. He has deposited his peace into your life. When he deposited the Holy Spirit into you at the moment of salvation, the question is, are we going to quench the spirit? Are we going to live in peace? He says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Isn't that a word we need right now? The Bible says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. So we can walk in the peace of God irrespective of our circumstances because of the work of the Spirit of God who lives inside of us. But number three, the Bible talks about living at peace with others. And I think there's something we need to see here in relation to spiritual warfare. And I think this is something we need to see today. Listen, don't let an election divide your family or divide the body of Christ. I mean, you can have convictions. You can share your opinion. But don't let it be divisive. Maybe we just all need to chill a little bit and let the process play out and see what happens and honor that. The Roman, or Matthew 5.23 says this. It says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... 
and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Listen, sometimes if we're, if we're not at peace with our brother, sometimes we need to go and make that right, to work that out. I mean, we're, the Bible says as much as lies within you to live at peace at all men. That means some people you can't live at peace with, but we're to do our part. That's what we're responsible for. We're not responsible for somebody else. We're responsible for us. Ephesians 4.32 says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Sometimes we need to forgive other people if we want to be in fellowship with God and have peace. But why is that so important and how does it relate to spiritual warfare? I want you to get this. Ephesians 4.22 26 and 27 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. And and the word place means foothold or stronghold or base of operations. Listen to me. You talk about a chink in your armor. If there's anger, uh, ongoing anger, bitterness, unforgiveness in your life, you are giving the devil a base of operations to work from in your life. You don't have a chink in your armor. You have a hole in your armor. Listen, unforgiveness and bitterness is a doorway to the demonic in your life. And maybe this is somewhere where your struggles are coming from. Maybe there's somebody you need to forgive. Maybe there's a situation you've been hurt by that you're carrying, that you need to talk to somebody about it, find somebody that can help you work through that. Because it's just having this residual, multiplying, ongoing negative effect in your life. Bitterness is a doorway to the demonic. It's giving Satan a stronghold. God wants us to be at peace with him, be filled with his peace, to live at peace with others. But then out of that, this is kind of the other side of this, the shoes of peace. He wants us to share the gospel of Peace. Uh, Romans 10, 14, and 15 says this, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Listen, we are called to be ambassadors of peace to the world around us by sharing the gospel. Remember what we talked about last week? If not now, when? Who's your one? Who is it that God wants you wearing the, 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 the shoes of peace to go and take the good news of the gospel of you can be at peace with God to them? Who are we supposed to witness to? Listen, I would encourage you, you know, as you give, you're supporting us uh, getting the gospel out. You're supporting us doing missions uh, around uh, the world. Uh, Do you realize beyond what we're doing in Honduras that this year that um, uh, one of, you know, we have these training centers where we're training people. There's now one in Guatemala. There's plans within the next couple of years for it to spread to Nicaragua. Uh, We're working with some people to help them get training in Uganda right now. Something you'll hear more about this next week. We're actually uh, going to do uh, the Southern Baptist Convention of Lottie Moon uh, Christmas offering for international missions. And I would encourage you to consider giving uh, to that. And, uh, you know, as you hear about that in, in the weeks to come, we are called to be ambassadors of peace to the world. So, 
God wants us to live in this victory that Christ won for us. To do that, gotta put on the belt of truth, gotta take up the sword of the spirit. We have to put on the breastplate of righteousness. In other words, we have to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But then we have to live that out. Christian, are you living in, in obedience? Is there an area of disobedience in your life? Is there a chink in your armor there? Is there unconfessed sin in your life? Is there a chink in your armor there? Are you filled with the peace of God? Or is there a chink in your armor there? Are you at peace with others? Or is there a chink, a hole in your armor there? Are we being ambassadors of peace to those around us? Or is there a chink in our armor there? I mean, if you're a Christian, is there something you need to repent of, something you need to make right with the Lord today? Maybe you need to make a decision that there's, you need to make an attempt at fixing a relationship. Maybe you need to apologize to somebody. Maybe you need to forgive to somebody. Forgive somebody. Maybe there's somebody you need to go share the gospel with. But I just want to close by talking to people that maybe you have Job's question. How can a man, how can a woman be made right with God? Are you, do you know, are you right with God? God? Are you forgiven? Are you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting him and him alone? Listen, the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 6.23, it says that the wages of sin is death. But in Romans 5.8, the Bible says that God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you recognize that you're a sinner, not that just you've made some mistakes, or done, but like you have lived your own life apart from God in rebellion against a holy God. And, you, and you're sorry and you know that there's nothing you can do to make yourself right, but you believe that Jesus died for you. And not only that he died for you, that he rose from the dead, that he bore your sins, but he rose to give you new life. Listen, the Bible says, just look at the screen and just read these couple of, of verses. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the mouth, uh, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We, how, how are you made right with God? You believe in your heart, and you confess with your mouth. It's that simple. That's the most profound thing ever, but it's that simple. You believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth. What do you believe? You believe in Jesus that he's Lord, that he's God, but he left heaven, he came to earth, he died for you, he rose from the dead. You actually confess that he is Lord, which is what it says, that he's God, that he's your God. When you confess Jesus is Lord, you're saying, Jesus, I am trusting in you. My life now belongs to you. I give myself to you. And what I wanna ask you today is, is Jesus the Lord of your life? 
Is that what you believe? I'm not asking if you're a member of a church. I'm not asking if you've taken communion, if you've been baptized, if you prayed a prayer. Maybe some of you, you, you were kids and you prayed some kind of prayer. Or you talked to a parent or a pastor and somebody said you were a Christian, but down deep on it, you don't hardly even remember it. Uh, my question is, I'm not asking about an, a past experience. I'm asking right now, can you say with confidence that you are trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation? that you are confessing him as the Lord of your life. And you can stand in confidence, trusting that you're forgiven, trusting that you're right with God, and knowing that there's biblical fruit in your life. If you're not sure of that, I would implore you to settle that today, right now. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.